several years ago, Burger King decided to rip apart friendships in the name of free Whoppers. It was a part of an ad campaign called Whopper Sacrifice. And here's how it worked. You defriended 10 of your Facebook friends, and in exchange, they gave you a coupon for a free Whopper. But not only that, Burger King would notify those 10 previous friends um, that they had been sacrificed in exchange for 37 cents worth of a cheeseburger. Now, as you might imagine, it raised some controversy. All right, Some people don't like being told they're worth only one-tenth of a cheeseburger. And so there were boyfriends that got dumped because they had defriended their girlfriend. Old college friendships were torn apart. But it was also very successful. It was one of the first widely successful like online viral marketing campaigns. In less than a week, 234,000 people were defriended and Burger King was on the hook for 23,400 Whoppers. But after 10 days, Facebook shut down the promotion, uh, saying that it violated their users' privacy. Now, you and I, we both know that, that Facebook friends aren't necessarily real friends. Shoot, you might have like 10 Facebook friends that you're not even sure who they are. But I think this highlights a genuine issue in our culture, and that is that Friendships aren't what they used to be. Uh, Matt Walsh, he was the marketing guru who came up with this whole Whopper sacrifice promotion. And he said that, that one of the core elements of the campaign's popularity was that it tapped into a real tension in digital culture. And that is how social networking has changed our idea of what friendship means. Friendship literally doesn't mean what it used to. We don't appreciate the value of true friendship. A recent survey asked this question, in the last six months, how many people outside of your family have you deeply discussed an important personal matter? And more than half of the respondents couldn't come up with a single person. And yet, at the same time, I, I think as a culture, as a society, we are starved for human connection. Just May 3rd of this year, what, a month and a half ago, a couple months ago, the Surgeon General released uh, a general advisory calling attention to what he called, quote, the public health crisis of loneliness, isolation, and lack of connection. And this is about much more than just bad feelings. All right? our, our lack of friendship has been connected to a 29% increase in risk of heart disease, a 32% increase in stroke, a 50% greater risk of dementia in older adults, and premature death goes up by 60%. All right, so it's truly a public health crisis. But I will also tell you it's a spiritual health crisis. Right? Our frayed faith is leading to fractured relationships because the most intimate of human connections 
takes place at the soul level. Now, 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, describes the friendship of David and Jonathan. And it describes it this way. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. One church father described this kind of friendship as, quote, two bodies with a single spirit. Now, in last week's message, we began looking at, at the threads that knit these two souls together. And most importantly, they had a shared faith, right? There was a, a spiritual core to their friendship. We also saw that their relationship was a, a giving, selfless relationship, right? Neither one of them was in it just for what they could get out of it. Thirdly, their friendship was built on encouragement. They they supported they they supported and sustained each other. And so, what I want to do in this message is is look at, at three more threads of soul friendship that that tied David and Jonathan together at the deepest level of their souls. And the next thread of friendship that we see is that a soul friend goes the extra mile. Right? A soul friend is going to be there for you and with you during both the good times and the bad times. A soul friend isn't afraid to stay involved in your life even when it gets messy. Now, You'll have good friends, and good friends might be people that you you go to the ball game with, you spend the day shopping, you go fishing with them, you you do a spa day together. All right, but soul friends, those are the ones who are also with you on moving day. They're the ones who are there when you've lost your parent. Right? They're the ones that take you to dinner when you've just lost your job. Right? They are by your side on the worst day of your life. That's a soul friend. And they're not afraid to, to roll up their sleeves and get a little messy with you. I, I love this little verse written by Peter Marshall. We have the nicest garbage man. He empties out our garbage can. He's just as nice as he can be. He always stops and talks to me. My mother doesn't like his smell, but mother doesn't know him well. A soul friend is someone who isn't afraid to get involved in your life even when it stinks right in first samuel 20 verses 1 through 4 we see a powerful story that shows that that jonathan wasn't afraid to get involved in david's life even when it got stinky and he had a loyal uh, devotion that was based on truth and love and it was a stronger bond than even his loyalty to his own father I'm going to say something here, and, and your gut instinct might be to disagree with me. But I think the Bible backs me up on this. And so I ask you to chew on it for a while. The family you choose is more important than the family you don't. Well, it's this kind of loving devotion that leads Jonathan to go the extra mile for his friend. Here's what we read. 1 Samuel 20, beginning with verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? 
What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? Now, first, Jonathan is kind of in disbelief at this. Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well I have found favor in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. All right, so Jonathan is immediately risking his relationship with his dad and maybe even his own life. And Saul's jealousy for David is not only grown deadly, it's he's becoming insane. He betrays David by giving his promised bride to another man. Then when David says that he will agree to marry another one of Saul's daughters, Saul demands a dowry from David that's really designed to just get him killed. When that doesn't work, Saul tries to kill David himself, and he enlists the help of all of his men, his, his servants, his aides, to help, help him kill David. And so when the hitmen arrive at David's house, David narrowly escapes with his life. And where does he go? To his best friend, Jonathan. A soul friend is that friend that you can go to in the worst of times. And it didn't matter that Jonathan was Saul's son. David knew that, that Jonathan would listen. And he knew that he could trust Jonathan, could count on him. So David and Jonathan, they they develop a plan for Jonathan to determine Saul's true intentions. And then Jonathan's going to secretly report back to David his findings. Jonathan's willing to help his friend, even though it puts him at odds with his dad. So Jonathan's going the extra mile here. Now, we've all got fair weather friends, and, and fair weather friends are those friends that will be there as long as things are going well. But a soul friend isn't just there when things are going well. They draw closer during the roughest times. And to Jonathan, friendship meant that it was okay to be inconvenienced. It was okay to to put himself at risk to help bear the burdens of his friend. And at the end of 1 Samuel 20, verses 30 through 34, we see just how far Jonathan was willing to go. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? What about his father? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established now. Send and bring him to me, for he must die. Listen to Jonathan here. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. All right, so now Jonathan is putting his own life at risk. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the month, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. 
But Jonathan never got to a point in his friendship with David where he goes to David and he says, you know what, brother? Um, it's been great knowing you. Uh, I've enjoyed being your friend, but and this is just getting way too much. I, I can't handle any more of this. It's just more trouble than it's worth. I wish you well, but I mean, you and I, we got to go different directions. Jackie Robinson was the first black to play major league baseball. And while breaking baseball's color barrier, he faced jeering racist crowds in every stadium. And one day while playing in his home stadium of Brooklyn, he committed an error and his own fans began to ridicule and boo him. And he stood there all alone on second base while the fans' jeers just rained down on him. Well, one of the superstar players on the team was Pee Wee Reese. And Pee Wee Reese, the, the shortstop, he came over and he stood next to Jackie Robinson. And he put his arm around Jackie, making himself one with him. And he looked at the crowd. Didn't say a word, but just identified with Jackie. And the fans, they grew quiet. And Robinson later said that that arm around his shoulder saved his career. But at the same time, Pee Wee Reese was putting his own name and his own career on the line, risking it to save his friend Jackie Robinson. Now, before I move on from this thread of soul friendship, I need to point out something. There is a difference between a friend who finds themselves in a mess and a friend who purposely wallows in their own mess. Right? Friendships where you have a friend that is continually seeking out a mess or repeatedly making their own mess without ever making a genuine effort to clean it up or to get out of that mess, right? that's not a healthy relationship. That's not a healthy friendship. Now, being a friend means that you're willing to get dirty to help your friend out of a mess, but it doesn't require you to wallow in their filth with them, right? That's not friendship. That's foolishness. That's what the Bible's talking about when it says bad company corrupts good character. But as long as you keep that in mind, remember that, that a thread of true soul friendship is that a soul friend goes the extra mile. Number two, a soul friend also lets you be you, right? A soul friend lets you be completely open. Right? You can be yourself. You don't have to pretend to be something you're not or keep up false appearances, right? You can tell a soul friend what you really think. You can let them know how you really feel. And they'll listen. They'll understand. They'll support you. Now, a soul friend can also speak the truth into your life, right? No matter how hard it is for you to hear it, right? You're open, not just in what you express to them, but you're also open to receive from them. Proverbs 27, five through six says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiply kisses, right? We all need friends who are able to wound us in love, right? So do you have that kind of friend that, that you can openly express yourself to, but when they need to speak the truth into your life, 
you're open to their wounding but loving words as well. But someone who befriends you based on well, what they want you to be or what they think that they can make you become, that's not a soul friend. But please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that that a true friend indulges your sin or they tolerate evil in your life. No, a, a true soul friend will, will confront you, will hold you accountable. But more on that in a little bit. A soul friend will let you hurt and will feel your pain along with you. A soul friend will let you rejoice and they will also be filled with joy. A soul friend will let you cry and their tears will mingle with your own. A soul friend will, will let you laugh and they'll cackle right alongside you. You talk, they listen. You doubt, they wonder. You ask, they question. In your joy, they rejoice with you and your joy is doubled. In your sorrow, they comfort you and your sadness is cut in half. Right? That's soul friendship. And that's what David and Jonathan have. And we see a very touching scene in 1 Samuel 20, verse 41. Now, by this point, things have completely fallen apart between David and King Saul. And Saul has tried repeatedly in various ways to kill David. And Jonathan has interceded on David's behalf. And Saul's tried to kill his own son. And so now David knows it is not safe for him anywhere in his own country. And so David's about to go into hiding and he must part ways with Jonathan. And this is a difficult time for both David and Jonathan. And the text says that David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David more. That's how heartbreaking this parting is. But these weren't two men that were trying to impress each other. There were no false fronts here. These were just two guys being themselves and expressing their friendship and their emotions. Neither one of them was trying to make the other one think that they were something they were not. It was genuine. It was real. It was soul friendship. Now, this is also where it's probably the best place for me to address something that I wish I didn't have to say, but it's it's the world in which we live, so I have to say something. But there are increasingly those that try to make the relationship of David and Jonathan a sexual or romantic relationship. And they use this relationship to defend the idea that, well, that being homosexual is perfectly okay in God's eyes. Because, well, here's David and Jonathan. They have such an intimacy and, and affection, and their souls are knit together as one. And, well, obviously, they must be gay. And it's really sad that some people feel the need to go here. But I tell you something. These statements tell us more about our culture than they do David and Jonathan. Because our culture is so impoverished of soul friendship, especially between men, that we cannot conceive of a, of a loyal, loving connection between these two men without there being some sort of, of sexual component to it. But the Bible frequently points to friendships that are, are supporting and loving and life-affirming without, without being sexual in any way. 
how do we know that David and Jonathan's relationship wasn't sexual? Well, first of all, the Bible presents David as someone after God's own heart. He was somebody intent on following God's law. And Jewish law was very clear on this issue. Right? Homosexual relationships were something clearly defined as out of bounds under the Old Testament law. And Samuel and, and, and the various authors of 1st and 2nd Samuel never would have presented David as a man after God's own heart if he had this glaring inconsistency in his life. Plus, as we'll see in a later message, when we get to David's adultery with Bathsheba, that that when David does sin, right, Samuel doesn't pull any punches. Right? He doesn't try to airbrush anything. He doesn't try to make David look better than he is when David does violate God's laws. He's very open and forthcoming about David's sin. And so that the idea that the author of, of this scriptural book here is just kind of hinting around the edges about David being gay, that doesn't make any sense. All right, We are reading into the Bible our own modern issues instead of reading what's just there. And so making this friendship into a gay relationship is a prime example of reading the Bible with an agenda rather than reading it with an open heart and an open mind. Secondly, David specifically contrasts his love for Jonathan with sexual love for women. In 2 Samuel 1.26, David says this, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was more wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Now that sounds intense, and it is. But notice that David isn't comparing his relationship to Jonathan to a heterosexual relationship. He's contrasting it. He's saying, it's not like that, right? It's a different kind of love and commitment than sexual love, but it's real and it's important. But for the most part, our society has lost this whole category of relationship. And I think it's one of the reasons really that our country is so confused on sexual identity and, and, and these issues. Because we don't have a place for this kind of relationship. And, and so we become very confused about these things. And it's tragic. Because we need these kinds of relationships between men, between women, that are filled with loyalty and commitment and affection and intimacy, but it's not sexual in nature. But you know how it is in hard culture. We make everything about sex. And because of that, we've lost something very dear in the process. But there's a third thread that we see knit, knitting David's soul and Jonathan's soul together. And a soul friend is someone who defends you. Right? A soul friend sticks up for you, even if you're not around, to defend yourself. Now, we've all had those friends that, all right, they're nice enough when we're around, but when we're not around and they're with others that are maybe putting us down, they remain silent, right? Or maybe they jump right in and make a joke at our expense. 
right? That's not a soul friend. One of the marks of a soul friend is that they stick up for you. They seek to protect you. A soul friend does not want to see you vulnerable and open to attack. And Jonathan displayed this protective nature to its greatest extent. Now, remember, it was his father that wanted David dead. And, and initially, Saul tried some more subtle backdoor methods to get David killed. But when that failed to work, Saul became very open about his murderous intent to everyone around him, including Jonathan. And he tried to secure their assistance in getting David killed. 1 Samuel 19 once says, Saul told his son Jonathan and all of the attendants to kill David. So it's a, a royal edict at this point. David is public enemy number one. I want him dead. And so what does Jonathan do here? Does he reluctantly go along with the king's order? Would he ignore the request? Would he pretend to go along with it, but not really? No, he sticks up for his friend uh, openly. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David, but Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand uh, with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you, and I will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Now, <laughs> Saul's vow would only last a short time. But we see here that Jonathan was a friend that would never stab David in the back. And he's not going to let anyone else take a free swipe either. How well do your closest friends stick up for you? Do they protect you? Do they defend you? How do they talk about you when you're not around? Now, let's flip that around. Let's look in the mirror for a minute. How do you treat your friends? Right? How do you stick up for them? Right? Do you put them down when they're not around? Do you make jokes at their expense when they can't hear it? Right? A soul friend is not just a friend to your face, but behind your back as well. Now, as we wrap up this story of David and Jonathan, let's take just a minute to look at the bigger picture for a moment. Because it doesn't matter what Bible story you're reading, there is the story. And then there's always the story behind the story. Right? There's always this bigger picture of what God is doing to save humanity and to restore our relationships with him. And so how does the story of, of David and Jonathan and, of course, King Saul fit into this larger canvas? Now, in biblical terms, David is the first king in a dynasty that eventually leads, well, all the way to Jesus. Jesus was a descendant of David. And a key component of biblical prophecy is that, that Jesus is a rightful heir to David's throne. Jesus is the promised son of David, and that's what he's called. So David himself becomes sort of a 
a prophetic road sign pointing the way to Jesus. Now, David was a great king, but even in the Old Testament, there were prophecies that, that pointed out that, that one day a king even greater than David would sit on the throne and that his throne would be an everlasting throne and his kingdom would last forever. Well, the New Testament affirms that Jesus is that king. He is the, the descendant of David who sits on an eternal throne and rules over an everlasting kingdom. Now you have Jonathan who humbly submits to David, even though according to the, the rules of the world at that time, Jonathan is heir to the throne. But Jonathan recognizes that, that David is God's man. And so Jonathan humbly sets his own claim to the throne aside. He acknowledges David's right to the throne, even though that means he must surrender his own claim himself. Jonathan becomes a picture of what it means to surrender to Jesus as the king of our lives, the ruler of our hearts. Right? To come to Jesus, you have to be willing to walk away from any claim that you have to the throne of your own life. Right? Your other response, though, is to be like King Saul, to try to keep God's king off the throne. And you can spend your entire life fighting against God, you know, working against Jesus' purposes in your life, and you're trying to keep the throne for yourself. I'm going to rule over my heart. I am the master of my life. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do it my way. And so let me just ask you, what is your response? Are you going to resist? Are you going to try to keep the throne for yourself? Are you going to surrender the throne? Surrender your heart to him. And really, there's only two choices. Right? You can either bow before him and surrender, or you call out for his crucifixion. Just like Saul and Jonathan, you either surrender you try to kill the true king. What is your choice? Thank you. And God bless.